This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Do we only trust and worship God when things go well in our lives, or do we trust and worship Him regardless of our circumstances and especially our suffering? Well, there is no book in the Bible that addresses this dilemma more than the book of Job, and that's what makes it an absolutely practical book in our own day since it deals with the timeless themes of suffering and the sovereignty of God. So we're going to dive into this book a little bit today with Dr. Richard Belcher, Jr. He is professor of Old Testament and academic dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Today, we'll be talking about his book, Job, The Mystery of Suffering and God's Sovereignty. And it's so good to have you here, Dr. Belcher. How are you? I'm fine. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. As you say, it's not easy to write a commentary on Job, and I imagine that that is the case. What would you say makes it so challenging? Well, the book of Job, it's easy to get lost in all of the speeches back and forth. And so part of what I've tried to do in this commentary is just, you know, straightforwardly set forth what I think each of the speeches is trying to uh, get across so you don't get lost in, in the speeches. Of course, it begins in chapters 1 and 2 where the stage is set, and, and, and that's a little bit more straightforward, but but there's a lot of dialogue in the book, and it's easy to get lost in the dialogue. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because I've had that experience when I mm-hmm. read Job, mm-hmm. and you'll be reading one of the responses of Job's friends, and you'll say, now, wait a minute, is this the guy who's falsely accusing, or is this the correct theology? And, and it becomes a little bit daunting at times. It, it does, and and part of the part of the problem is the friends say a lot of things that are generally true, uh, even some good theology that that's generally true, but it doesn't apply to Job's situation. And so there's a wisdom issue. Uh, how do you apply theology is part of the issue. Yeah, very much the case. Now, when you're talking about Job, a lot of people don't understand some of the basics about Job. I think they just leap right away to the fact that Job lost his property and his children mm-hmm. and God and Satan talked about it and his friends rebuked him. And then he comes to his senses at the end of the book. But put this in historical context, if you would. Many talk about it being the oldest book in the Bible. And here we have a man who was a worshiper of God, but was not an Israelite. What is going mm-hmm. on that people need to know to set the stage for the book? Well, Job seems to be a non-Israelite, but he's a worshiper of Yahweh. Uh, that uh, name for God, Lord, is is used in the book. It, it's really hard to know. Um, we have other examples in the uh, Old Testament and Proverbs, King Lemuel, um, Agur's confession of, of non-Israelites who uh, seem to be worshipers of the true God. Uh, the thing about Job is uh, is the story itself. Um, that's the important thing, that he has a relationship with God. And we see clearly in the first two chapters that the suffering comes upon Job, not because of any sin that he has committed. That's very clear in chapters one and two, and that sets the stage for the rest of the story. Right. Well, now what's interesting when you read through Job is you notice right away, here you have God and Satan discussing Job, but it's mm-hmm. the Lord who initiates 
initiates the discussion about Job. It's not Satan saying, can I go after him? But he's saying, the Lord is saying, have you considered my servant Job? What, what should we make of that? Yeah, that's a good point. God is sovereign uh, throughout the whole uh, book of Job. Uh, he sets limits on what Satan can do. He, as you mentioned, he brings up uh, Job uh, to, uh, to Satan. And uh, so God is sovereignly uh, working out his purposes throughout, uh, throughout the book, throughout the life of Job as well. That's right. What, what might be the reason that the Lord is doing this? Should we speculate to that end? I know it's dangerous to speculate, but what sort of insight might you have on the Lord initiating this trial that Job is about to go through in the context of his own sovereignty? Well, I, I think ultimately it's to help us as, as, as we are reading. It's going to help Job for sure. The interesting thing is God. Job is a book about suffering, but God never explains to Job uh, the why of his suffering. Yeah. It's more a book about how should we respond to suffering and where is wisdom uh, in the context of our suffering. And ultimately wisdom comes uh, from, from God as Job has to um, learn that um, in his dialogue with his friends. Right. So now when we're talking about Job being blameless and upright, he sure shows that, it would seem, initially in his response mm-hmm. to his suffering. He you know, loses so much, and then he arises, he tears his robe, shaves his head, and then mm-hmm. he falls to the ground and worships, and he says that, that famous passage, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, God, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Mm-hmm. But by Job 3, it's sort of changed. By Job 3, he's lamenting. How mm-hmm. much do you see his wife and, and, and other circumstances having taken hold in his life to get him to the point where at first he does not sin at all, and then later he's lamenting? Why? Well, I think it shows us that suffering can have its impact on, on us, and he, even as it had its impact on Job, even though he was innocent in his suffering, uh, I, I characterized Job's wife as sort of responding in panicked pity. I mean, she pities Job in his situation. She's lost everything, too, you have to remember. Um, And his response to her is really really good. It's just that he feels comfortable in front of his friends to sort of unload his heart. And um, that's what starts the dialogue. But but I think it shows us that, that suffering does impact the way we look at the world and the way we look at our lives. Uh, And the one thing about Job is he does persevere, even though he certainly is protesting there. Yeah. Well, going to the wife's question, I think this is Mm -hmm. a really powerful question. Do you still hold fast to your integrity, Mm -hmm. curse God, and die? Now, when we suffer in our own lives, and most of us will never suffer to the extent Job did, but what of that question that we should hold on to our integrity and the the importance of holding on to your integrity, actually, when you are suffering? Right. And in this situation, the whole issue is, will Job continue to honor God even in the midst of his suffering? And Satan's accusation was, Job just loves you, God, because of the good things you've blessed him with. If you take those things away, then he will curse you and die. Right. And and the wife reflects that uh, a little bit. And so part of the question is, are we going to continue to love and honor God even when things are going rough in our life, even when we are we are suffering. Right. Well, and also, and I know we're going to get into more about the friends in a few minutes, mm-hmm. but it, it also reflects for me 
uh, a really a uh, problem with people sometimes, people in our lives. Because when Job was dealing with what the Lord had allowed and what the Lord had ordained in his life and what was happening in his life, the suffering, he reacted correctly. When other people got involved, it seemed that got him a little more off track. Is that significant in any way, do you think, that the fact that people were making it complex and making it harder for Job to deal with his suffering? Oh, very much so. Um, the way the friends initially respond is good. They come, they sit with him, they don't say anything. But then in their response to Job's lament, they begin to accuse him of, of, of being sinful and bringing on his suffering because of his sin. And that's not true to reality. And um, so they make it very difficult on Job and People can make it difficult on people who are suffering. Uh, even some of the disciples asked Jesus when they met the blind man, who sinned, this yes. man or his parents? And, yes. and that's not always the issue when in suffering. No. Why was it the issue? I mean, obviously, it's an issue in our day as well. People still will talk like that. But why do you think that that was such a pervasive notion for the friends of Job, that if, if you're suffering, then you must have had it coming? Yeah, it's hard to know in, in historical context, but I think it's just a part of human nature uh, that when we see things going wrong, we sort of automatically think that a person must have done something right and the friends must have done something wrong. And the friends don't have a category for an innocent sufferer. And that's part of what we see develop in the book of Job, that there are people who suffer and they've not done anything to bring that suffering upon themselves. It goes back to the mystery of God's sovereignty. Right. Now, that's such a good point that they didn't have the category for an innocent sufferer. I want to pick up on that when we come back from this break. But we are talking with Dr. Richard Belcher, Jr., his book, Job, The Mystery of Suffering and God's Sovereignty. We'll return on Janet Mefford today right after this. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, 
month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. If there's one thing we all share in common, it is the problem of suffering, the mystery of evil, and God's sovereignty. These are timeless questions that every Christian thinks about and wrestles with at various times. And no book in the Bible probably speaks to this issue more than the book of Job. And we are discussing with Dr. Richard Belcher Jr. his book called Job, The Mystery of Suffering and God's Sovereignty, a commentary on this very important book in the Old Testament. You made a comment, and I referenced this before we went to the break, Dr. Belcher, that Mm -hmm. these friends of Job, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, Mm -hmm. didn't have a category for an innocent sufferer. And this is why they kept making the point to Job that you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. But you talk about how it's not always clear what's being argued in different sections of the book when you see these back and forth sections between Job and his friends. How do mm-hmm. you unwind all of those sections of Job where he's hearing from one and responding and hearing from another and responding? What do you draw from all of those passages put together? Well, um, Wisdom literature, uh, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, uh, that you get to the right answer is important, but sometimes it's also important the way you get there. And so you have this dialogue, and it is a bit difficult uh, because the friends, as we said, say a lot of things that are um, good about God, but they say a lot of things that are not correct. And so ultimately their view um, is a mechanical view of sort of the deed-consequence relationship that Job has done something wrong, therefore he must have, uh, j- that's why he's suffering. He's suffering, therefore he must have done something uh, wrong. And so when I read through the speeches, I, I, and I try to point this out when I, in my commentary, sort of the, the good general things that the friends say, but, but as you go through the speeches, they begin to get harsher and harsher uh, against Job right. and, and try to get him to even, they even give him some examples of sins he must have committed. So it's, it, it gets a little bit um, harsh as the debate goes on. Yeah, it really does. What would you say are some of the good things that they said? Because you're right, they do say some very true things, theologically mm-hmm. correct things. What would be the good things that the friends point out to Job? Well, you reap what you sow. That's a biblical principle. It's just a wisdom issue as to how it applies to Job. Uh, God is the creator. God is a God of justice. Um, God punishes the wicked. Uh, those are all things that uh, that they affirm. It's just when they begin to apply those things to Job is when they get into to difficulty. And we know that as readers because we've read chapters 1 and 2, and Job and the friends are not aware of the events of chapters 1 and 2. Yeah, that's right. Well, when Job accuses his friends of being sorry comforters, or he says, mm-hmm. for example, at the beginning of chapter 19, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? I mean, mm-hmm. you can just imagine the emotional toll that this is taking on him. How do you see that 
as a comfort to us uh, in terms of identification that you're not the first person to feel like nobody gets what you're going through? Well, that's very true, um, that if you're going through suffering, you can even expect people to say things that even though they may not mean to be hurtful, sometimes they they will be hurtful. Um, and at some point, we can talk about how Job is the innocent sufferer, you know, pointing us ultimately to Christ. Yes. But, um, but you have to, you know, part of responding to suffering is allowing the person who's suffering the, the freedom, if you will, to, to unburden their heart uh, and, uh, and to walk with them. Sometimes the best response when someone is suffering uh, is just to be there with them. They're to be a presence with them and not have to explain things. We sometimes feel like we have to give explanations for things, and that's not always the best response. No, you're absolutely right about that. I, I mean, I've often thought, and I know I'm not alone in this, that it goes on for so long, all of this back and forth with the friends, and I'm thinking just after a few paragraphs, why doesn't he tell these friends to get lost and get some better <laughs> mm-hmm. friends who are going to make him feel better? Was there a sense of isolation that you pick up from the book of Job that, that these were the main people surrounding him and he really wasn't getting any alternate input at the time? That's the impression you get. There were other people there because Elihu kind of chimes in, but uh, these friends were the ones who were mainly carrying on, on this debate with Job. Yes. Now, when we get to the portion of Job where the Lord weighs in, this is mm-hmm. very interesting. What can you tell us about that portion of the book of Job that that really puts everything into context finally? Well, it's it's that um, if, if, if you remember the end of chapter three, when Job first sort of begins his, his lament, he's, he uses the pronoun I a lot, I, 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 and it shows how suffering has impacted him. And I think the first speech of God, just a barrage of questions about his creation, the wonder of his creation, the majesty of his creation. He's trying to get Job partly to see that, that there's a beautiful, wondrous world out there, and Job has perhaps become a little bit more, a little bit too much um, focused upon himself. That's part of what's going on. Ultimately, God wants Job to see that he is in control of things and that he is sovereign and that Job needs to trust him uh, with his suffering. Yeah, that's right. Well, you mentioned Elihu before, and in Job 36, you have Elihu Mm -hmm. proclaiming God's goodness and majesty, but that leads into the Lord revealing his omnipotence to Job Mm -hmm. and saying, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer Mm me. Was there a connection that you saw between what Elihu said uh, just from analytical, looking at the, you know, the passage itself that Elihu led into the Lord saying that? Was there something in particular that Elihu said that elicited that response from the Lord? Well, Elihu, uh, I have a mixed view of Elihu. I think positively, Elihu's last speech is about the majesty of God and creation, which leads you very much into God's speech uh, about creation. Elihu also, there's an undercurrent that he tells Job, God has no concern or requirement to answer you, but then God does answer Job. Yeah. So uh, Elihu's kind of a mixed bag in, in, in my particular view. There's different views of Elihu that people take toward him, but I see him as a mixed bag. Right. Well, speak to that all-important issue of Job as something of a prefigure to Christ, because we go back to this theme of the innocent sufferer, the person mm-hmm. who is going through horrible, horrible suffering, but not because he had it coming, but because the Lord willed it. How does that prefigure Jesus Christ? What, what sorts of connections do you see there? 
Well, he is the ultimate innocent sufferer. I mean, Job is blameless, which means doesn't mean sinless. It means he's not a hypocrite. Um, but Christ is the ultimate innocent sufferer who suffers on the cross uh, for us. And if you remember what some of the people said at the foot of the cross, um, he claims to be the Son of God. How can the Son of God be suffering on a cross? It didn't make sense to them. Right. Uh, and it's similar to the friend's view of Job. Job is suffering so much. How can he be blameless? Uh, and there's, there's a similar relationship there. And um, But ultimately, we understand uh, through God's revelation that it was the innocent suffering of Christ on the cross that uh, brought about our salvation. And he is the Son of God. It's, it's just that the chief priests and the scribes really wrestled with that. And the Jewish people in First Corinthians uh, wrestled with a crucified Messiah as well. Yes. Yeah, they did. Well, and you think of the Lord being taunted on the cross. If you're really the son of God, you know, exactly. <laughs> do this, do that, save yourself and, you know, all the rest. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. so similar that there's a connection there with the taunting. He, the Lord was taunted as well. That's right. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, man. Well, now I go back to this whole thing that you mentioned in the commentary about the themes of Job. Certainly suffering is a main theme. And we've talked about that. God's sovereignty obviously has to be talked about because you look at Job's confession in chapter 42 where he answers the Lord and says, I know Mm -hmm. that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What about that? What about that truth that no purpose of the Lord can be thwarted in the context of suffering? How can that help us, do you think? Well, it it tells us that God has purposes and that he's working out his purposes and those purposes are good purposes sometimes in the midst of our suffering we can't see the good purposes we we don't have the whole picture um but but we trust that god is working out his good purposes for us and for his people um and romans 8 you know covers that too that um that all things work together for good. Now, when someone's going through suffering, they have a very difficult time sometimes uh, coming to grips with that. But but eventually, like Job, eventually we would want a person to come to the conclusion that, yes, I'm suffering and it's been very difficult, but but I see God's goodness and, and, and I have to trust that his purposes are, are good uh, for me. And then seeing Christ suffering on the cross, I think, encourages us because we see how God brought great things out of out of Christ's suffering. Absolutely. And the fact that Job retracts and repents, mm-hmm. that that is just really significant, I think. And and after that, of course, at the end, God restores his fortunes. Now, some people will say, oh, this just goes to show you that you're going to go through great suffering as a test, but then God will give everything back to you. That's not really the lesson of Job, right? That's true, at least not in this life uh, for the believer. Um, but, uh, but, but God's purposes have been fulfilled. And so um, he uh, he does honor honor Job at the end uh, in this way, but we can't say that everybody uh, who has gone through suffering, you know, will experience um, tremendous blessing. No, that's right. That's exactly right. At least not physical, material blessing. There will be that spiritual um, blessing from God. Right. So what would you say is the most important thing about the book of Job? Would it be the sovereignty of God or would it be persevering through suffering or would it be both? I think I think it's both. I, I think the two go together, um, and, and I, I do like the idea of Job persevering. You know, at times Job is in great despair, and he says things that cross the line a little bit about God's 
justice and he feels hopeless. But then there are situations where Job just statements of faith that sort of come out of nowhere as he begins to contemplate who God is. Um, and so um, it, it is interesting to see both sides, both despair, but then strong statements of hope as he perceives God in the midst of his suffering. Absolutely. Well, again, the commentary, Job, the mystery of suffering and God's sovereignty, Dr. Richard Belcher Jr. with us. And Dr. Belcher, so good to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Meffer today. In Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus Christ asked Simon Peter, who do men say that I am? And he answered John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. And then came the real question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now we all know that's the case, but there are still millions today who don't know who Jesus really is. And many portraits of him in modern life are really misleading. So what are the major portrayals of Jesus that are found in the early earliest historical sources. We're going to talk about that today with Dr. John Dixon. He is a senior research fellow of the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and is also co-director of the Center for Public Christianity and author of the book we'll be discussing. It is called A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And great to have you here, Dr. Dixon. How are you? Lovely to talk to you again, Janet. Thank you. You too. Well, you say you are often struck by this discrepancy between the Jesus Christ you hear preached sometimes and the Christ who emerges from the pages of history. What would you say that difference tends to be? It's hard to know where to begin, really. Uh, I must admit, there, there are some sermons deep uh, down in my computer somewhere that I don't think I could preach anymore the more I've come to understand the Gospels. Um, I, I, just to give you one example, I, I mean, I used to say things like, we really shouldn't focus too much on Jesus' teachings as an ethical teacher, because so much of the Gospels are about his uh, death and resurrection, and that's where the focus should be. Right. Now, of course, that's absolutely true. The Gospels emphasize those last three days as the climax, but an awful lot of the Gospels is Jesus the teacher. Yeah. And so uh, I myself had to relearn what's really there in the sources, even though Jesus as Savior is for me the most precious thing. He is my teacher, and the disciples constantly call him teacher, even when they're in the middle of a storm, worried for their life. They don't say, <laughs> Lord, Savior, you know, or even Captain. They say, <laughs> they say teacher. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, I, you know, that, that for me was a lovely wake-up call. But then you could flip it the other way around, and we could sometimes so emphasize Jesus as Lord that we make him remote. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you come across the gospel passages where he is a servant, where he makes clear that he has come to serve, not be served, then that sort of upends my own 
attraction toward the majestic Lord who, you know, conquers all things. And yet I must remember, he's the one who put others first, who was a slave of all. And that corrects me again. And the same thing happens with the world. There are many portraits in the Gospels where the the world would be confronted if they were to really read the Gospels instead of just going with the Jesus of our imagination. Yes, such a good point and so many things to follow up on that you've just said. So when you're talking about academia, for example, because this is an arena in which there are many skeptics, I would say, about who Jesus is, what would you say in academia they tend to get wrong about Jesus? (laughs) <laughs> they uh, tend to play down his outrageous statements about his own mastery. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a temptation to view Jesus simply as a human being with some lovely ideas who preached the kingdom of God. And yes, 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 he said some very weird things, but let's not focus on those too much. But of course, what you end up doing is just... Uh, the same thing anyone can do is we project our own preferences onto Jesus. And a lot of scholarship uh, over the decades has just projected onto Jesus whatever happens to be the fashionable ideas of the moment. So through the Enlightenment, scholars used to just make Jesus into a moral teacher who didn't say anything, you know, dramatic about his uh, role as Savior and Lord. Uh, In the first part of the 20th century, there was so much skeptical doubt about Jesus that they uh, focused everything on the cross and uh, thought, we don't know anything about Jesus beyond the fact that he died, so let's just focus on that. And on and on it goes. But I think the main thing is not confronting the fact that Jesus said things like he was the judge of the world, saying things like, uh, if Uh, The 12 apostles are a kind of renewed 12 tribes of Israel, which is what the 12 apostles really uh, represent in Jesus' life. Then he's not one of the tribes. He's the one the tribes follow, Hmm. which is as good as a claim to absolute divinity. Um, And so it's these things that that scholars know about, but they play down because they are just too creepy. That's interesting. Yeah, you're right about that. And even as Christians, I think we tend, like you said at the outset, I think we tend to go for certain titles of Jesus. And there's so many different Mm -hmm. names for Jesus. He's the king, but he's the servant of all. I mean, there's so many paradoxical descriptions of the Lord. And sometimes we lose the multifaceted character of God when we do that. Well, I think that's that's the experience I've had studying Jesus and and teaching uh, the life of Jesus at a secular university here in Australia, I myself have been confronted time and time again by the fact that I can't box him in. You know, so on, you know, I can't do it on the academic side. I can't do it on the theological Christian side. I've got to let Jesus be Jesus and read the Gospels and, and let him Uh, to use a metaphor, punch me in the face with his dramatic claims to lordship and then tend to my wounds and and love me as the friend of sinners. Um, I've got to just experience that, not contradiction, I I don't want to say it's a contradiction, but but he's so not able to be boxed in, either theologically or academically, just let him be who he is. And I think then we really are encountering 
the the true Jesus. Well, now, for many Christians, they will say, I get my information from the Word of God about Jesus. This is where we go. We go to the Gospels primarily, and then we go to the Epistles, and then we go back to the Old Testament to understand the pre-incarnate Christ and the prophecies of, you know, that His coming and all the rest, and we put the Bible together. But there are also other historical sources that point to Jesus. And I'm wondering what you think we ought to know about those sources and what sort of, uh, I would say, information and how it goes together when you compile the information that you have from these various sources. What do you find? Fabulous question. Look, I think uh, the basic Christian approach, which you just outlined, is the right approach. Um, I don't want to say every Christian has to know about Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius or Pliny, you know, these extra, extra biblical sources. But there is value in those extra sources. I mean, we as Christians follow an actual historical series of events. That, that is the, the interesting thing about Christianity. It, it um, gambles its entire plausibility on an actual life in the first century, in Galilee and Judea. Therefore, everything we can get to know about Judea and Galilee by using other sources and archaeology uh, is going to be beneficial. We don't preference that stuff. We don't say that stuff, you know, trumps the Gospels, of course, but they do bring a certain element. uh, They they help us focus on elements that we might skip over. Just one example. We know what... Uh, people in Judea were wanting from the Messiah when he came, because we have this amazing poem called the Psalms of Solomon. It's got nothing to do with Solomon. It's not a biblical text, but it was written by Pharisees in Jerusalem about the year 50 BC. So just 10 or 15 years after the Romans came and took over Judea. And what they are hoping the Messiah would do is basically kill Romans and to wipe out the sinners, to wipe out the people who dare to tread on Jerusalem's holy soil. And when you know that that's what was expected of the Messiah, to come in military victory to slaughter the sinners, and then you see Jesus come teaching, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and then sitting down with the sinners, and on occasion even being sweet and tender to Romans, like the centurion, who comes and says, you know, can you, can you heal my boy? And, uh, and, and Jesus does, and even says, I haven't seen such faith even in Israel. And, and so when we, when we read that story or the, the tender teachings of Jesus against the backdrop of what people wanted the Messiah to do, suddenly we can see how dramatic Jesus really was. It's true. Dr. Dixon, hang on. We'll be right back with Dr. John Dixon. To me, the ultrasound was the best part because up until that point, I did not think about anything but myself. I did not think about the blessing that I was given or what was inside of me. The Ministry of Preborn meets young moms where they are and introduces them to their preborn babies. Because when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears his heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, she will see her baby as a living person, not an inconvenience. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. 
Would you join with Preborn and Janet Maffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. Call 855-402-BABY now. 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMaffer.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here and great to have with us Dr. John Dixon, Senior Research Fellow of the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie University in Australia, co-director of the Center for Public Christianity and author of A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And such information is really helpful to us as Christians, but it also is good information for skeptics. There are many doubters about Jesus, and they don't know a lot about these historical sources that we've been discussing. As you were saying, this is really interesting to me, Dr. Dixon, what you said before we went to the break. For example, when you're looking at some of these historical sources, you had mentioned this poem written by Pharisees about 50 BC, I think you said it was. So we know what the expectation was and the people of Judea, what they wanted in the Messiah. So that gives context then when you go to the scripture and you read how Jesus was received or was not received, as the case may be, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that would give you an extra clue as to the context. That's right. And it explains things like, why would Peter rebuke Jesus, whom he's just declared Messiah, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die? You'd think Peter would say, Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for dying for my sins. I'm looking forward to that. Instead, he rebukes the one he's just declared Messiah. And then Jesus, of course, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And we think, what on earth is going on there? It's precisely because Peter is thinking like someone expecting the Messiah to come and conquer the sinners, to get rid of the Romans. And Jesus says, that is not the way of God. That's the way of man. And he rebukes Peter in, you know, no uncertain terms. Yeah, that's right. So now when you go to other sources, you mentioned Pliny, Tacitus, some of these other historical sources from ancient times. This is above the pay grade, a lot of people would say, of the normal Christian. Oh, I'm not going to sit down and read these guys. This is way above anything I can really understand. But when you compare them to one another, how do those sources tend to confirm the existence of Jesus and his identity? Well, amongst secular historians around the world, there is no real doubt that the figure in the Gospels lived and taught and was a famous healer and caused a stir in Jerusalem and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. 
Of course, the resurrection weirds them out a lot, <laughs> and they don't really know what to do with that, except that it really looks, on historical terms, like there was an empty tomb and many people claiming to have seen him. So they're historical facts, even if the actual miracle of a resurrection is outside even the historian's pay grade, as it were. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, the, the confluence of evidence, the way the evidence you know, sort of builds a picture, whether it's Josephus, a first century Jewish writer, or Tacitus, a, com- a completely separate Roman writer, or Marabar Serapion, who's a kind of um, a, a pagan writer in Syriac, um, they all refer to Jesus as uh, famous, as having caused a stir in Jerusalem. Josephus even calls him a doer of paradoxa erga, to quote the Greek. It really means paradoxical works, strange works. (laughs) Josephus even, this first century Jew, knew of Jesus' reputation as a healer. And one of the interesting things amongst uh, scholars today is that you will hardly find a, a scholar, and I mean secular scholars in state universities, hardly find a scholar who doubts that Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. Even if the scholar doesn't believe miracles are possible, there's enough data for us to conclude that Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles. And then the historian sort of leaves it there and doesn't comment on whether miracles are possible or whatever. But it is, it is striking because the evidence we have for Jesus as a healer is stronger than for any other figure of ancient history. And in, in the book, I try and un- unpack some other Uh, reputed healers we know from the time, and the evidence just doesn't stack up in the way it does for Jesus. That's so interesting. Well, it's interesting, you know, this goes against something that I hear a lot in our culture, and that is the reduction of faith in Jesus Christ to taking a leap. In other words, it's not based on anything other than your fondest hopes and dreams and imagination (laughs) that there is this man who took on your sin and rose from the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ascended into heaven. Sure. That's a leap of faith. It's not based on anything substantive. And it seems Christians are always trying to come back and say, no, it's based on historical evidence. What about that disconnect when you're talking about interacting with skeptics, even academic skeptics? How much does it matter for Christians to say, but wait a minute, there really is archaeological evidence that this city existed and there really are outside historical sources beyond the Bible that confirm Jesus really lived? How much weight do you think that generally tends to have with skeptics? It depends what kind of skeptic we're talking to. I mean, in the end, I think talking with people who don't believe is a kind of spiritual thing. And so I'm a great believer in the fact that if you can just get someone to take the time to, say, read a gospel, I think God actually speaks to them and uh, beats down their arguments and woos them to the person of Jesus. So I think there's a spiritual dimension going on. But often, with a skeptical person, it does require some argumentation to even get them to the point where they'll sit down with, say, the Gospel of Luke and study it with you. Mm. And so that's, that's the place of arguments. You can't argue someone into trusting Jesus with their life, but you can argue someone into, saying, into seeing that the Gospels are real historical biographies of an actual life. And so that kind of data, whether it's Josephus or Tacitus or the archaeological evidence or the background sources, th- this is all important to help people realize, oh, I thought we were dealing with the Hobbit or Santa Claus. Um, And and suddenly they're confronted with the fact that this is a real first century life we know an awful lot about. Maybe you should take the time to take it seriously. And when they do that and they put themselves uh, up close and personal with Jesus in one of the Gospels, 
I think that's when quite dramatic spiritual things can happen. Oh, you're so right about that. And and you go into, in the book, as people will read the book, they'll really benefit from this, the, the different names of Christ, the different roles of Christ, the scandal of his social mm. life. You talk about friend and savior and, and, you know, Caesar, the whole issue of Caesar and the subversion of an empire and the threat that Jesus was. What about, though, I really honed in on this part when I was going through the book. You talk about the importance of understanding the biblical story of Israel and understanding Jesus. And in a way, this is right in line with what we were discussing earlier, the Pharisees poem uh, and how that gave context to the Gospels. But what about the biblical story of Israel as background to understanding Jesus in all of these roles that he fulfilled and all of the things that he was? It is uh, crucial. Um, it, it, in some ways, it's the key background source. So historians will, of course, uh, try and understand that poem by the Pharisees that I mentioned. They'll, they'll look at Josephus and the Mishnah and the Pseudepigrapha and all these other documents out there. But, but every historian knows that if you want to understand Jesus, you have to read what Jesus regarded as the Word of God, because it, it really influenced him. And one of the things we find um, compellingly in in the Gospels, is that Jesus is acting as if he is renewing Israel. And one of the the keys in, say, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel uh, is when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm. Well, everyone who knows the story of Israel knows that Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years uh, before they went into the Holy Land. And everyone knows that in those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel failed God. They were tempted by God, uh, tempted by the devil, as it were, tempted by uh, you know grumbling at God, uh, testing God, and uh, they failed. But the amazing thing in that narrative at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he goes and he himself is tested for forty days, forty nights, he prevails in all of the areas Israel centuries earlier had failed. Yes, and and the point. The point seems to be Jesus is renewing Israel by doing what none of Israel could really do, and that is fully obey God. He is the true Israelite. He is renewing the people of God. And then, of course, when he calls the 12 apostles, you know Israel is beginning again in Jesus. Yes. So this is a very important point, it would seem, for Christians. Don't just stick to the New Testament. If you're, if you, you know, because there is that tendency. The New Testament is easier to read. I don't have as many difficult historical passages and all these difficult names I can't even pronounce. But if you don't understand Israel, right, you're not going to completely understand the context of the New Testament. Oh, that is so right. It, you know, just reading the Gospels without reading the Old Testament is like walking into a conversation halfway through <laughs> and really not really not really knowing what's going on. You know, if you walked into my office and heard me say, you know, you are an idiot and should give up your day job, uh, <laughs> you might think, oh, no, what's John saying? But, but, if you, but you missed the first part of the conversation where I was merely reporting what someone said to me, that I'm an idiot and should give up my day job. So you completely miss it. You're walking in halfway through a conversation without the Old Testament. Exactly right. Well, and there's just so much to take in and so much to learn and understand about Jesus in these many roles that he had as teacher, as you say, and judge and savior, of course, and Lord. And we just can't limit him. We can't put him in a box, but he needs to be able to speak for himself as the God man. And that's why we really need to bow the knee to him and understand him as he revealed himself to us. Well, the name of the book, Amen, A A Doubter's Guide to (laughs) Jesus, Dr. John Nick Dixon. And it was just so great to welcome you back, Dr. Dixon. Always a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dan. Bye-bye. All right. God bless you. And thank you for being with us.
Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford Today. It's always a joy to have you here. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time here on Janet Mefford Today. Today.